Breathe it in. You're on a college campus. The wind and birds in the trees, the tolling of the bell and the cupola, the esoteric chatter of frisbee-playing sophisticates. Or maybe you hear the honking of horns, the smell of exhaust, street performers, the vibrancy of a huge city. The feel of a college environment is a real thing. Why does it feel that way? Did the campus designers intend a certain feeling, and what was it if so? How can prospective students have a deeper, more meaningful experience as they visit college campuses? There's no doubt you will after listening to Nader Tarani, Dean of Cooper Union School of Architecture in New York City. Welcome to The Crush. I'm Davin Sweeney, an admissions counselor who interviews fascinating humans about all things relating to college and college admissions. Hey, uh, subscribe on iTunes. Why wouldn't you, you know? Okay, so when you step onto a college campus, you have a feeling, and it's a feeling that usually is different from feelings you get in other spaces and places. I mean, I've had feelings that range from, hey, this is really fun, to where is everybody, to this is a college, to I really don't belong here. That feeling is in some ways totally subjective and personal and unique, and in other ways it's shared by lots of people who visit that campus because it's designed in a way that creates those feelings. These feelings are in full effect this month of April as throngs of admitted students hit the campuses of the schools that admitted them in an effort to find their future alma mater. This is the time in the dating metaphor of college admissions where after telling applicants we like them, we on the college side are now asking the students to like us back. Will they like a traditional campus with acres and acres of land-granted real estate? Or one where the line between campus and city is non-existent? Maybe a little tiny school way out in the middle of nowhere? All these options are out there for students to choose from. Nader Tarani is a very accomplished architect and scholar. He's in his first year at Cooper Union after chairing the architecture department at MIT. He has some really insightful thoughts, as you'll hear, on campus spaces, their design and growth, their increasing value in the era of massive online open courses or MOOCs, how schools take their own history into account when adding new buildings, and how history complicates the designed experience on campus and calls the very existence of those things into question. A special thanks to Mitchell Lipton, Dean of Admissions at Cooper Union, for helping make this talk happen, and a very special shout out to the brilliant composer of my theme song, Dave Lawson. This week, we're all thinking about you, my friend. I'm the Dean of the Irwin S. Channon School of Architecture of Cooper Union. How's your position as Dean different from being chair of the department? It's an interesting question because in many ways, my position as chair of the Department of Architecture at MIT uh, required a lot more work in terms of administration and coordination of many discipline groups. So as title, the Dean of the Irwin S. Channon School of Architecture sounds much loftier, but the reality is that it's a smaller job in with respect to uh, the audience I have and, uh, uh, and, the, and the way I have to operate on a daily basis. So it's great, actually. The good thing also is that it's in the middle of New York City. So beyond the students and the faculty here, the audience is clearly much, uh, much larger. But I can spend my time here not only administrating, but actually getting into the, uh, 
depth of some of the pedagogical challenges that we face today. Yeah. So, and you you were in Boston before this, and you still have a um, practice in Boston. I have a practice in both Boston and New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boston has been our base. Uh, yeah. New York has always been a smaller office, and uh, hopefully, this will become a moment where we can transition both to have a, a life of their own. Mm, cool. So, like my my primary interest in talking to you is that I I work as a college admissions counselor, mm-hmm. and so what my my job is to really, first of all, counsel students really through the a very complicated process. And I am really always shocked with the degree to which no matter how much I can tell them, no matter how many, how many, how much they can read, how many numbers they see, how many statistics that look good, their friends that they talk to, it doesn't matter. It all comes down to setting foot on the place. And once they get there, they're like, it's a very visceral, ineffable response that they have. And they're either like, this is it, or this is definitely not it. And so I've always been really impressed or really, really interested by the idea that these are designed spaces and they have a very particular look and feel. Why do colleges look the way they do? Why do we have um, colonnades and bricks and ivy in some? And then here we are at Cooper Union with two very distinct styles between this very old historical building and this very brand new, very modern looking facility across the street. So, um, so that's my, that's my sort of general interest. So I guess, how does a college's architecture contribute to the feel of a place? These are good questions. It is true that we select the college we go to in part because of its academic credentials looking at it in a more abstract way. But more often than not, we also uh, look for that link through the chemistry you feel with the place. Sometimes that has to do with the culture of the people, its spaces, the places of work, but also the places where you uh, lay back and relax. And the classic New England college, I'll speak to that for a moment, whether you're thinking of Harvard or or Brown or even MIT, they were all characterized by a key civic moment that brought the fragments of its culture together. Harvard Yard, you know, mm-hmm. the the brown green, the the quad at MIT, Killian's Court. There was always a public dimension to these campuses that represented. Uh, the ethos of its community, irrespective of what happened around it. Now, these campuses also developed very differently. Some are composed of purely administrative and academic functions like Killian Court, which means it's alive during the day but subsides uh, after a certain hour, whereas Harvard Yard has a variety of functions and programs and is alive and well at nighttime and early morning because it has residents as part of it. And so you come to appreciate the way in which planning and the urbanism of the civic realm of these campuses are a central part of creating that culture. Uh, And I think that becomes all the more important in this day and age where questions of finance come to cut into our investment in infrastructure in public space and in the space between things where a lot of the 
actual learning happens, mm -hmm. not the institutional space of the classroom. It's also interesting if you look at more contemporary examples or alternatives to the, the classic you know, quad model. Look at the comparison between Brown University and RISD. At Brown, you know when you've arrived. At RISD, the way in which the campus, its buildings, its departments and its disciplines are embedded within the fabric of Providence is such that it's indiscernible from the way in which the city operates. And that's the beauty of the way in which it operates. Was that a, was that plan, was it part of the plan for that to be the case with RISD? It, it was not because it, it was an institution that aggregated and accumulated buildings over time. And so there are discrete spaces that come to be associated with the college, but they're the space of the city. And the students that go there, myself being one of them, we felt that coming from high schools that were protected, insular, inward-looking, this was a way to enter into the civic realm, but being embedded with its citizens, with the, the people, and and taking on the world on a different type of stage. So it's a different kind of learning experience when you're in a, uh, when you're in a, when you're in a more urbanized campus. It's absolutely it's because you feel and it's the same at Cooper Union. You're at once protected within these walls of the studio, but as you step out, you're on a world stage. There's a permeability between absolutely. You know, there's one of one of the folks that I talked to talked about college being a place where you leave the you know, the real world behind so that you can observe it from afar, that becomes more difficult when you're in a place like this. In, in an instance like this, you have the two extremes. You have the insularity and the protection of the studio. But when you wake up in the morning and you want to see the Picasso show that was up recently, you get to go there uh, as a member before the city is completely alive and you get to go to the galleries and you begin to have a dialogue with both historic and contemporary debates uh, of which you become a part as you start to produce your own work. So I think uh, RISD was a microcosm of that condition which we get to live at Cooper Union. Were you looking for that when you, just, when you went to RISD? Absolutely, because I went to a, a preparatory school that was in a way a small version of the Browns and the, the Harvards. And so I was doing anything I could to find a place that embedded me within a larger cultural realm. And RISD is a kind of microcosm of New York in many ways. So have you designed academic spaces yourself? Uh, we have. I, we have designed the School of Architecture for Georgia Tech, the Melbourne School of Design at the heart and core of University of Melbourne and under completion now is the default the the University of Toronto School of Architecture Landscape Design. One of the things that fascinates me is as a completely as a as an utter layperson an observer of architecture is it it is it's the intersection of just so many different things as a discipline and it's incredibly um uh, interdisciplinary in nature and I would imagine that when you did and the nature of a college campus or space or organization is equally complex and by nature utterly and completely interdisciplinary 
what kinds of things are you having to take into account when you're designing a space in an academic realm versus a non-academic realm? The way you frame the question is a poignant one because the question of interdisciplinarity is is uh, has has arisen as a very uh, key point in the the space of campuses today. More and more in different schools, we're beginning to see the uh, challenging of the pillars of study or the pillars of uh, the silos of different disciplines. Uh, people are looking at different and organic ways of bringing the humanities uh, into uh, the sciences, uh, merging the arts and sciences, and certainly architecture is uh, one of the best places in which uh, one can absorb all of these different strands of knowledge. I indeed, we need to learn a lot as generalists, and yet we need to have a depth of concentration on those things that impact our understanding of buildings themselves. But it just so happens, particularly at the Melbourne School of Design and, and the University of Toronto project, that both of these projects involve a, a very critical look back into their own curricula, how to expand their courses and audiences, and how to absorb not only the city and the campus within the inward organization of the buildings, but how to encourage a different intellectual dialogue with other fields, something that had hitherto been somehow thwarted. So even the organizations of those two buildings involve a relationship to the streets, the plazas, the quads that absorb the city within them, draw the public through them, and set up programming aspects of the exhibitions, the libraries, and the spaces, spaces of research such that it brings in that, the extended fields into the core of design. And how do you reconcile the fact that you've got in, so I, I often think of Cornell as this example of a place that is at once very old in its own right. And then it also seems to feature this very wide array of architectural styles across its campus. And that you've, on the one hand, you've, and then you've also got construction on campus and the you know erection of new buildings and stuff as this sort of political sign of growth and health and uh, how do you as an architect in an, in, a, in a landscape like that reconcile the age and the value of the history of the place in be, sort of being really critical to the value of it but then also um creating a brand new space and experience against that history. You started this discussion about the chemistry, the look and the feel of a place. And like many of these other schools we've named, I think Cornell has a distinct uh, relationship with the natural landscape and the city of Ithaca. The two ravines that run east-west are a key part of the geology of that campus. And... I don't know if you know this, but we had a lot to do with the designing of the safety barriers around them. And so we, we came to learn more about that campus. 
I think sight uh, and cultural context matters a lot. It, on the Cor Cornell campus, what was important about the context was how uh, the city and the campus care about the natural heritage as much as they do about the buildings. That is a central part of building that context. So building barriers was not a positive thing, though saving lives, of course, obviously is. In terms of building new buildings within that context, therefore, it becomes important that at, at one level, new architects are contributing to maintaining a sense of that place, but at the same time, identifying ways in which Cornell culture can be translated into new terms. Mm -hmm. To that end, architecture is not merely a, a passive reflector of culture. It produces new forms of knowledge about that culture. And so you can begin to see the way in which the expansion of the new school of architecture um, produces a situation that is larger than the sum of its parts. While it is an addition to the two buildings, by connecting the two buildings, it offers a, a payback that expands on what architecture can do for that campus. It just so happens it's on the precipice of the ravine and it gets to enjoy not only its distinct relationship with the quad, but also that geographic uh, drop that, that happens to its north. So I think that that is what our responsibility is. At once, uh, understanding how you embed and reflect a culture, uh, at once how your responsibility is to map its transformation and contribute to the to the production of new forms of knowledge. Some of these, I mean, these buildings feel very intimidating. They feel very imposing uh, at times. You know, you look up at that, whatever that central thing is, the library, think, you know, think of, a lot of these campuses have a building like that where it's very, very prominent. It's very distinctive. And it can feel a little intimidating. And I think in particular, too, about maybe kids who don't have college in their family history um and or or you go to to Columbia there are big black gates in front of it <laughs> you know they're open and you can walk through them but there's there's a little bit of an edge to some of these things that feels intimidating were they going for that let's take the question uh in the smaller scale for an instant and then we can come back to the larger scale okay consider for a second the design of a classroom the historic or the classic classroom reflects in many ways the culture of its indoctrination. The lectern is on a podium. Uh, the, the way that the seats and the desks are regimented reflect the kind of top-down teaching uh, that was instituted down to the ways in which uh, propriety operates what is correct, what is incorrect, and how we entered into society. Um, consider also different classroom models that evolved after that period, where 
debate seating, parliamentarian seating, offer a space of debate, if you like, uh, interaction, conversation to occur, uh, polarizing, if you like, between one platform of philosophy and another. Consider as an extension of that what happened at Exeter, where the um, Harkness table brought a scale and a model of learning whereby the professor is no longer at the head of a classroom or even a table, but is one more participant amongst a cohort of students that lead the class. Uh, imagine the teal spaces of MIT and how they're at once connected to the world, but also connected to each other as peer members. What are those like? Those are multi-pod systems that are connected to a, a screen or a technology that can speak to Mumbai and at the same time working with each other in the kind of Harkness model at the same time. So there's so many of these, uh, of the ways in which spatial layouts, material layouts, impact the, the feel and the operation of an institution that all of a sudden you begin to realize that the layout of the larger building and their image on campus is actually ex is an extension of that. Currently, there is a lot of investment in our research and many others in the classroom of the future. But we are also recognizing that a lot of learning is happening in those in-between in spaces, particularly since so much of learning happens mm -hmm. online even outside of our degree-giving institutions. How many times do you see lectures on YouTube uh, or TED Talks or many of the other platforms that are happening now? We're constantly consuming and learning uh, new forms of information. So the space of the campus now is the space of interaction, the, the space of project-making, uh, the place where we debate and come together uh, for collaborations. And so all of a sudden, they're not a neutral backdrop for the classes, quite the opposite. They are the infrastructure for that interaction. So campuses, if anything, are becoming even more important now that education has become much more horizontal in its access. Can you expand on that? Do you think that, that campuses in the physical location and, uh, uh, and, and interaction of humans face-to-face has actually increased in its value, given that even in and in spite of we're given that we haven't the capability to interact with everybody anywhere. We can look at this two ways. From a real estate perspective, if the same knowledge is available online as it is on campus, the campus has to provide something uh, that is a surplus than what than what is online. So the quality in the feel uh, feel of the dormitory room, yeah, the opportunities that are imparted by the layout of the library as a space of interaction, all of these things matter because they're not available online. Um, at the same time, it's obvious that, you know, with everything available online, it means that also the person that's on campus may gain that same information online too. So students, kids may be offered lectures online that they do outside of their classroom time, which means the classroom time is now dedicated to that unique thing that we do as 
peer-to-peer uh, -peer that we couldn't do online with the same ease. So how much can you really account for and guide, I guess, more guide what happens in an educational environment where so much of it is going on in the spaces between those which you are designing as an architect? Or to what account, to, to what degree do you account for those spaces? How are they, how are, how are, how are student interactions, how are learning experiences guided through those spaces or, or are they? And they just, um, people sort of learn in those spaces in between in spite of the, the physical things that are there. Think of the economics of a school of architecture, for instance. One of the most expensive things of any classical school of architecture is the real estate you have to give to the studio. The dimension of that desk is large and every student buys up a chunk of that real, real estate, either in whether it's free education it's being paid for or whether it's paid for in tuition, that's expensive. It's for that reason that students that do not take up that kind of real estate are operating within those interstitial spaces. So this is how you know why um, hot desks are so hot today as, a, an, as an educational concept because it, it, it accounts for the scheduling lag between people who are coming in morning, afternoon, or evening. And that's why the spaces in between count for so much. Before I was tied to my drafting board. Now I'm not. That laptop can go into the lounge there. It can go into the library. And I can design, literally, in the public space, in the cafe, in the library, and in the workshop where I make things. And as a tool, the, the laptop has become my new desktop, my drafting board. Uh, this tells you the importance of, of our ability to reconstitute the classroom of today, merging it with our social spaces, because they are at once spaces of learning and spaces of, of interaction. One of the things that gives colleges and universities their authority is the relative permanence of it. And that you have, the more history a place has, you know, the better it is. I mean, this is, there's a piece of that, right? That, that, you know, we've been around for this long and, you know, there's a lot of history. I just came up here from the lobby where Peter Cooper's affects were on display and the history associated with a place of learning is just couldn't be a more important part of its identity. What? Let me ask this: What happens when some when that history becomes troublesome and offensive? For instance, that we've got um, you look at um, the libraries where it's just dead white guys' names around the top of it, or you've got. Um, uh, an, uh, an offensive character who's only newly become or has only recently fallen out of favor in a sort of a historical context. Um, there's a, a stained glass piece someplace or, you know, Cecil Rhodes uh, at, a, at a school recently has gotten, you know, they've, they've had to reconcile with that. So um, I guess I'm interested in the concept of, the, of, of history on display and history as a very, very important and forceful part of a school's identity. But then it also can, can become very complex. You know, in a way, I, I had not anticipated this question, but it's maybe the most interesting question, particularly for me because uh, some of the formative years of my childhood were spent in South Africa under apartheid. And in that context, uh, I was colored sometimes, 
and and white at other times depending on who my audience was and uh, of course at the end of apartheid we witnessed something that was that is in many ways unprecedented by many by 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 the measure of other revolutions and that is the way in which history was not erased it was actually acknowledged in a process uh, that was called truth and reconciliation uh, at one level certain truths emerged but they were reconciled as part of a transition that could motor a society forward uh, without the prospect of denial and i think that in many instances uh, american institutions among many others are troubled by histories uh, that uh, we can see even in the political campaigns today um, people are turning a blind eye towards uh, the role of migrants, refugees, and the history of this country uh, are part of its vital story, but they were also victims. So I think there must be a way to register and index the vicissitudes that got these institutions to the place they are today without necessarily raising, raising them on pedestals, because we know that these institutions in some times, in some ways were a mirror of the society uh, uh, it, that they occupied, and in some instances they led it to new, for, uh, for, uh, to, to new fronts. Um, and looking back today, where we are today, we have to also understand that we too occupy a particular place in history that somebody will look back on in 30 years and 100 years. Uh, and I think the erasure of that history is lamentable. And we're seeing how history is being erased by certain political groups, either through physical massacre uh, or through processes of denial. And is the removal of something that may have otherwise been considered to be completely permanent, but it's achieved a degree of political discomfort that is just completely untenable for one group or another, is the removal of something like that, um, I mean, it's, it's, a really, it's, it's a missed opportunity to use it. You, you understand uh, that uh, icons... Uh, are volatile. They mean a lot. Uh, and so, yes, the Confederate flag, if that's what you're referring to, among other things, are, are, are resonant uh, with associations. And, um, and if any culture has seen debates revolving around civil rights, it is this country. And so there comes a time where you have to recognize that this is a passage that you have already passed. Uh, it is not to deny people of their belief systems, but it's also there also comes a time where you have to acknowledge that uh, we are the society that we are today uh, 
because we're more inclusive. And so I think, I think it's actually very different to hold an icon on a pedestal versus putting it in a vitrine. Uh, this is not a question of annihilating the Confederate flag, but understanding that it's very different to put it high on a flagpole rather than encased in a museum that registers and indexes its position in history. And since as I, you know, I mean, I, I think that... Context is everything. Right, and that there aren't very... So take, for instance, you know, one of the things that happens in college spaces are names, right? The names of people and that as an element of the history and seeing those names over and over and over again even in publications and seeing them on the sides of the wall and knowing that 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 there's a history there associated with that name and so most recently there was you know there's the Woodrow Wilson school and um the debate there about perhaps should we rename it something should we uh, what do we what do we do with that name and that's more difficult to put a name into a, a case to observe it is. I think the, the function of institutions is to build a platform for debate. And so whether you take on the more volatile elements that divided a culture or whether you take the more nuanced positions that we take with respect to how we interpret a work of art, these are still part of that larger debate. And so insofar as the intellectual and the ideological impact of schools are important ones. It's that institutions have the power to frame a space for discussion and discourse. In that sense, I think it's a healthy one to evaluate what stays and what goes, but I still think erasure is not part of that because the value systems that we hold today are relative to other questions that will be asked of us in 30 years from now. So there is a place for all of this, but there's a difference in celebrating it as what we believe in versus understanding that it was a moment in time where something was part of the institutional fabric that is no longer. I'll just sort of uh, close with this because I know you've got, you know, some sleep to get at some point, maybe today. Uh, no, sleep. Sleep <laughs> is not on that. Uh. <laughs> um, the, the there is a cr sort of a the thing that everybody says because we started this interview. One of the the critical things that students need to do in the college selection process is visit the campus, mm. and it's become very banal. I think in terms of just how we discuss. Uh, the campus visit. Well, you've got to go because you'll do, you'll hear some information, you'll do a tour, you'll see the place, you'll hear the history, you'll hear the names, you'll hear the stats, you'll hear all of these things. What would you, like if, if you could give students and families some words on how to experience a college campus outside the context of the staging that the admissions offices tend to present the visit, what words do you have for students so that they can maximize their their visit to an environment like that such that they come away with with a, a, a richer experience that isn't the same as the last school they just went to with mom and dad and then they get back in the minivan and they go down to the next one and they get, you know. I think in the way that you frame the question, you've already answered it. It's like tourism. If you stay on the tourist path, you will get the official narrative. Uh, you will get the good views. 
and you will get uh, an image of the can uh, the campus and its culture that uh, can only go so far. Uh, usually, you need to reserve some time to walk the campus by yourself, off the beaten path, engage with students who know the culture of the school at that time better than anyone else, because that culture changes over time, and get a sense, not from one student or two, but a myriad of them. What is their experience like? What is their daily life like? What do they study? To what degree does that relate to what you're going to study? Begin to understand what the interaction between students are with each other. There is no substitute for that. But also to experience the cultural life of that institution within the city. This varies a great deal uh, from places like uh, Cooper, let's say, versus Cornell. You know. uh, so I, I really think that the campus visit is an important one. Um, but in as much as you need to get certain official uh, forms of, of narratives from the counselors and so forth, it's also important to do independent uh, research uh, and uh, hike out the school by yourself. Do you have a favorite campus space? My favorite space for a campus was never built. It was called the RISD Stairs, and it was a project done for the campus of RISD uh, as a proposal and, and remains a kind of projection in our memory. What would it have been? A monumental set of stairs larger than the Piazza di Spagna that connected not only RISD, but Brown back to the Providence River. The geography of Providence is such that um, a river divides downtown from the hill. Uh, Brown occupies the top of the hill. RISD is on the side of that hill. This staircase was the heart, was going to be the heart and soul of the RISD campus because it was of such a magnitude that it would become its quad, its plaza, its central space. Well, it was a planning proposal and eventually you know, life happened and the museum was built on that spot, which is a great museum, but it doesn't fulfill the urban function uh, that the civic space to which I referred earlier on in the beginning of this interview uh, to bring the many parts of the campus back to a single spot, something larger than the sum of its parts. Many campuses have that, but given the world that we live in today, uh, given the lack of investment in infrastructure, public space, and a kind of uh, investment to connect to larger audiences, uh, I think this is the moment to rede redefine the campus in terms of that uh, in-between in space. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Is there anything else that you'd like to No, add? I'm, I'm uh, very excited about your podcast. I mean, it's, it's, I had not expected this in the way that it is, but it's fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks a million. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. So I was fumbling around a little bit to be more specific in my question to Nader about offensive spaces on campus, and here are the things I was trying to talk about. So Yale revised a piece of stained glass that pictured a black man in shackles kneeling before slave owner and 1804 Yale grad John Calhoun. Cecil Rhodes of the famed Rhodes Scholarship. Turns out 
was a pretty ruthless imperialist and has a giant statue at Oxford College in England. And in fact, just yesterday, April 4th, the news was released that Princeton will not be changing the name of the Woodrow Wilson School of International Affairs, colloquially referred to there as Woody Woo. Wilson was a noted racist who, according to the New York Times report, said the following to an African-American leader, segregation is not a humiliation, but a benefit and ought to be regarded as such by you gentlemen. So the truth is, an older a school is, the more likely it is to have had benefactors who embraced the uglier parts of our history in this country. In many ways, it seems you can scrape a name off a building, but you just really cannot scrape the legacy out of the school. As Nader mentioned, and as Princeton, Yale, and Oxford all likely agree, it's the job of the school to create a space to debate these things and recognize them as a part of the school's past and to help students understand that the presence of offensive objects is not a current day celebration of them. We all want our colleges to be a living endorsement of the most good and right things about our human society. And sometimes that works and schools decide to, for instance, divest in companies that do business in apartheid South Africa where Nader spent some of his childhood or divest in the carbon-based energy industry. And as many have done, Stanford perhaps being the most notable. Sometimes there's more value to be had in debating those things instead of tearing them down uh, where possible. Okay, so if you're still with me here and you're a parent or a student visiting college campuses, I can't reiterate Nutter's point enough about veering from the design program. Definitely do it, the design program, okay? Then make time to have your own experience outside the one that's curated for you by the college admissions office. Talk to lots of students, lots of them, and ask them, for instance, like, when was the last time they met with a professor? If you ask a lot of them that, then you'll have super useful information about the relationship between students and teachers. Uh, one thing I always like to recommend, pick up the campus newspaper. It's usually full of, you know, muckraking exposés that the admissions office likely won't present to you in the info session. So good luck and have fun. This is the fun part. Uh, one of them anyways. And parents, remember to keep the younger siblings fed. It's no fun when any of us are hungry, but especially them who are being dragged to all this stuff against their will. Okay, so check out more and sign up for email updates at crushpodcast.com. You can tweet at crushpod. Give me a call, leave a message, 50386-CRUSH. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. That way new episodes will just show up in your pocket. I mean, you know what I mean. In your phone, in your pocket, or wherever your phone is. Maybe it's not even in your pocket. Maybe it's in your purse or your backpack or whatever. Maybe you don't even know where it is. Maybe you lost it. You need to buy a new one. That happens. All right. I'm done. Thanks a lot, folks. See you next time.